Hi, Governor Jesse Ventura, and it's Die First, Then Quit, the name of my show, which of course means I'll only quit talking till I, when I die. I'm going to keep talking until I die, and that's the name of the show. And we've got a great guest today. I've got a gentleman named David Sirota, and David has is, is picked out a unique career, I'll say, uh, a career that I think requires a lot of self-control, you got to know yourself well, because otherwise his career could drive you crazy if, if you don't. And uh, David, you've spent your career working in both journalism and politics. Why have you chosen, like I said, to torture yourself like this? <laughs> in all seriousness, what inspired you to do what you do? Sure. Uh, so I went to journalism school at Northwestern. Uh, and I always thought I wanted to be a, uh, I started out actually wanting to be a sports writer. I was a Philadelphia, big Philadelphia sports fan. Uh, and when I was in college, I ended up working on a couple of congressional races uh, and I got kind of hooked into politics. And my first job, my first real, you know, sort of serious job out of college was I had applied uh, across Capitol Hill to go work for, I wanted to work on Capitol Hill. And I got a call back uh, from a congressperson that I didn't know. Uh, I never heard of. Uh, it was a congressperson by the name of Bernie Sanders. Uh, and Bernie Sanders asked me to be his uh, press secretary uh, when he was in the U.S. House. And so I worked for him. And I will tell you, if you've had those moments in your life, uh, they usually happen in sometime in your 20s where you have an experience and it changes your whole outlook on everything. And to work for Bernie Sanders as a kind of lone independent at the end of the Clinton administration, uh, sort of a unique perspective inside of the Congress. It kind of blew my mind about how things really work, not how they seem to work, but how, how they actually work. Let me ask you something. Bernie picked you. How did he know to pick you if you were this young little wet behind the ear kid out there? How could somebody at Bernie Sanders's level pluck you out? Well, first of all, I mean, Bernie Sanders was a relatively still then an, a relatively obscure member of Congress. Okay. But I, it's still it's a fair question. Right. I was a young kid right out of college. And, you know, that's it's a really a sliding door moment in my life. Right. If 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 my resume had fallen on the floor, or they just zipped past it. I, I think I would be having a have, have led a, a much different life because it's one of those kinds of things where it's one of those experiences where you can't unsee what you've seen once you've worked for Bernie Sanders on Capitol Hill. Sure. And, and from there, I became, you know, sort of very obsessed with money and politics, very obsessed with corporate power, very obsessed with exposing where the real power lies. And so from there, I worked on some campaigns. I've done journalism. I've done three books. And it's always been about essentially following the money in politics and following corporate power. And that's what we do now at levernews.com, where we do, you know, we, we report on where the power really is. Yeah, and that was my, you led right beautifully into my next question. You founded uh, the Reader Supported, and I'd like to say that the Reader Supported investigative news outlet, The Lever, in 220. Now, why is investigative journalism funded by readers so important and necessary today? It's a great question. And I think the, the answer is that corporate media. Uh, is not going to cover things that challenge. It, it, they're not going to cover things in a systemic way that challenge corporate power. Uh, I think the entire frame of corporate media is one to tell you that the status quo is okay 
that the current situation in our economy is fine, that really, if there are changes that are needed, they need to be minor changes at the edges, that billionaire and corporate funded media is going to give you a billionaire and corporate uh, uh, level viewpoint of what the world they think the world should be. And in my view, the way to to counter that is you need reader supported media th- th- who that is accountable to readers that is accountable to people that is representing a more people focused kind of reporting. And that's what David, we do. Would you lump free speech TV into that? Listen, I, I would lump independent media as a whole. Free speech TV has been a great part of independent media. Democracy now has been a great part of independent media. I could list for you, you know, the American prospect, there is now a growing uh, independent media movement in this country. And I think that's for, for two reasons. One, I think the ability to fund independent media uh, is at a greater level than it's been certainly in my lifetime with the internet, with all sorts of platforms that are you, you can actually get to, to readers, get to an audience. And two, I think the, the audience is sick of corporate media. I mean, if you look at the polls about people's trust in legacy elite media, I mean, people have completely lost faith and rightfully so in the corporate media that essentially lied us into to the Iraq war, fell asleep at the switch during the financial crisis, uh, you know, uh, in many cases, uh, amplifies lies that serve the establishment. And so I think people are sick of it. Absolutely. Now, let's move ahead. In light of the recent Supreme Court decision, you've written that the Democratic Party is practicing political malpractice. Explain what you mean. What is political malpractice and what 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 are the Democrats guilty of? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think the question is, why is the party not challenging the Supreme Court as a whole? And I think we've gotten used to and it's wrong. But I think the country has gotten used to this idea that the Supreme Court hands down rulings from the mountain and that those rulings can never be challenged. They can never be um, they can never be confronted. And that's just that's just a historical. That's just wrong. That's just not our history. That may be our recent history, but that's not our history. Uh, they The Supreme Court is one co-equal branch of government. The Democrats control the other two uh, branches of government. And there's plenty of things that the Democratic Party could do. Uh, legislatively overriding the court used to be a very common thing that happened all the time up until about the late 1990s, where the court would issue a ruling and the Congress would say, okay, you've issued your ruling. Now, Now we're going to issue legislation, new legislation to essentially uh, within the confines of your ruling, uh, essentially uh, change the law to do what we want to do anyway. You had Franklin Roosevelt, who went out and proposed expanding the court. Uh, And in the proposal to expand the court, he ultimately uh, got enough pressure put on the Supreme Court to get the Supreme Court to ultimately back down and stop blocking the New Deal. And didn't Roosevelt come right out and say that the Supreme Court back then was packed with Republicans who were making decisions that were basically unpopular to the rest of the country? Exactly. That's exactly the what same. The same scenario we're looking at right now. The exact same scenario. That's right. The, the a conservative uh, subset of the Supreme Court had been rejecting the New Deal, and he came out and said, "This is a political body." We are in a political arena and this is not acceptable and we need to expand the court. And look, 
Histor- some, some historians will look back and say that was FDR's biggest failure. But, but that's, in my view, and, the, and I think the evidence proves that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. FDR did not end up successfully expanding the court. But the reason he didn't was because public support uh, declined for that idea only when the court started backing down. In other words, by having the fight, the Supreme Court then began to allow the New Deal through. They felt the pressure. And so when you ask what's what are the Democrats doing now that's political malpractice, not challenging the Supreme Court in the face of wildly unpopular rulings, in the face of the court now being at, at, at its historic low in terms of public confidence, that is political malpractice. Although I, it sh- I should add, I think there's some complicity there. It's not just that they're they're screwing it up. It's that I believe that there are a lot of Democrats in Congress and the like, and maybe in the Biden administration who don't mind a lot of what the Supreme Court is doing, or at least don't mind it enough to actually take some real radical action. And I think that is fundamentally a problem because if, if, if the Democratic Party controls two of the three branches of government and is unwilling to go up against a Supreme Court that is effectively repealing the 20th century, uh, then they're surrendering the future of the country. Wow. Now, why do you believe there's such a lack of accountability in our politics today? Well, I think on the Democratic side, uh, I think, frankly, corporate media, Democratic aligned media, uh, the MSNBCs of the world are constantly conditioning Democratic voters to never hold their politicians accountable, never really demand anything of their politicians with the idea that if we demand anything of our politicians, that will somehow weaken them in their fight, uh, uh, in the fight against Republicans and kind of right wing authoritarianism. That's on, on the Democratic side. Now, I do think that Republican or conservative media conditions Republican voters to demand things of their politicians uh, and to hold their politicians accountable. And so I think this asymmetry between what Democratic voters are conditioned to, to feel and what Republican voters are conditioned to feel explains why we are here now, why the Republican Party seems on the march, why their policy agenda is being implemented, even though it is unpopular, and why the opposition has been so nonchalant. That asymmetry explains the problem. Now, what is your response to Democrats who say that it's too dangerous to be criticizing Democratic leadership or the party itself because it just gets Republicans elected then. Yeah, I don't buy that. And and I've never bought that. This idea like and if you use as an example, uh, uh, contested primaries, political primaries, electoral primaries, there is this idea that if we have too combative a primary, uh, if, if things get too uh, too heated between primary candidates, it will weaken candidates, uh, those dem- the final nominee, the ultimate nominee, whether in congressional seat, Senate, president, whatever, that the eventual Democratic nominee will be weakened from that process. But there, th- history suggests quite the opposite, that in the history of presidential politics, up until, in my view, 2020, and I served as Bernie Sanders press secretary in the 2020 race, uh, excuse me, as his speechwriter, sec- press secretary back when he was on the, on, in the Hill, uh, on the Hill 20 years ago. But my point is, is that up until the 2020 race, Democratic 
presidential primaries were rough and tumble things. I mean, they were vicious. If you remember the 2008 uh, contest between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, I mean, they were ripping each other's faces off. And by the way, rightly so. That's what a primary is for, to hash that stuff out. And I would argue that it, it toughens candidates up for the general election. Barack Obama got through that primary, went on to win uh, one of the biggest election mandates in the history of the country. And now I don't think he ended up uh, uh, following through on that mandate. That's a whole separate conversation. But I don't think you can say that the primary weakened him. I think what we're seeing now, frankly, is that because the 20, in part because the 2020 primary was not um, as harsh between the candidates. There wasn't as much of kicking the tires. There wasn't as much of a rough and tumble in 2020. And if you remember, it was because everyone kept saying, oh, you know, we have to focus on beating Trump and we shouldn't be negative against each other. I think you ultimately got a nominee who was actually quite weak. He barely defeated Trump, even in the middle of the um, of the pandemic. And and he has not, in my view, delivered on his uh, his promised agenda. And I think you can trace some of that back to the fact that he wasn't road tested uh, in that 2020 primary, that this new idea of contested primaries are bad, that took hold in Democratic Party culture. And, and I think you have to ask yourself, well, where does that idea come from? What is that idea really serving? And the answer obviously is, if you're the establishment, if you're the bosses of the Democratic Party, you don't want a contested set of primaries. You don't want uh, the, the candidates to hash out which candidates are siding with corporate power and the donor class and which candidates aren't. You want things as locked down as possible. So the point is, is that that idea that contested primaries are bad, that serves power and the status quo. Now, you and Alex Gibney wrote in Rolling Stone that U.S. democracy is in a meltdown. What does this meltdown look like? And what are the factors that are allowing it to take place if we're indeed melting down? Well, I think a lot of it does trace back to the 2009-2010 era, where you had a president who came in with a huge electoral mandate promising hope and change, and ultimately, uh, in, in the broad strokes, really delivered more of the same. Uh, and that may actually be understating it, that you had a president who raised expectations uh, who campaigned essentially promising something of a, of a new New Deal, who came in and then was on television a lot, uh, bailing out 13 bankers who had created the financial crisis, fortifying the private health insurance industry, not putting in place something like public option or Medicare for all. So essentially building up the wealth and power of the uh, predatory private health insurance industry, uh, while millions of people were being thrown out of their homes. So in, in a sense, I think what happened was the social contract, what was left of it, the that sort of connect the social contract, meaning the expectation that the government will materially improve people's lives. It was tattered by 2008, 2009, but the expectations were raised. And when the expectations were not fulfilled, I think that broke a lot of people. I think that sowed a disillusionment that we are still living through. It created the conditions for Donald Trump's ascent. And you don't have to believe me on that. Uh, Donald Trump's own uh, you know, consigliere, Steve Bannon, said, the, uh, this is his quote, the legacy of the financial crisis is Donald J. Trump. 200 plus counties voted for Obama twice and went to Trump. And if you are honest and you ask yourself, well, why did that happen? 
you have to trace it back to the disillusionment that was sown through the financial crisis that was not adequately dealt with. People saw a government side with Wall Street while millions were being thrown out of their homes. And I think we are now living through that meltdown today. We are living through the January 6th uh, riot, uh, the sort of authoritarian MAGA movement, I think is, has been fueled by that nihilism, that disillusionment that says the government can, can do nothing right. We were told it was going to fix things back during that horrible, horrible mess that we're still, we're still living through the after effects of. And so... So essentially, that's the, the fuel of that nihilist movement. And the problem for Democrats is they're positioning themselves as the defender of the status quo, the defender of the institutions that brought us to this moment. That's the problem for them. Wow. This is so interesting, David. I can't tell you how interesting this is, what you're saying. Now, let's move ahead while your film Don't Look Up is satirical fiction. It's quickly becoming, I think, a film like Network. You remember Network? Uh, which, and the, what one of the that, best movies. Oh, one of the greatest movies ever, where as time progresses, it becomes less fiction and more reality. Is your film following Network's footsteps? Well, I, you know, I've said this before, that, that the film is not designed to be a prophecy or destiny. The film is designed to be cautionary. I mean, I, I have heard people say, you know, your movie was one of the best documentaries I've, I've ever seen. And, and, and I appreciate that. But it, but it's sort of it's sort of sad. Uh, and and I'll, I'll tell you that that while we were making the movie, uh, we had to dial up how ridiculous it was to, to, to make it in order to catch up with the ridiculous dystopia that we're living in. We had to keep tweaking it. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think I, I think, look. I think, yes, if people see similarities to uh, to the real world in our movie, uh, I think that's that's legitimate. I think that's that's where we are. Uh, and, and the movie was designed to try to grab people by the lapels and say, hey, if we don't make some changes here, the proverbial comet is going to slam into the planet. Uh, and, but I don't think I, I remain an eternal optimist in this sense. I'm not a I'm not a, you know, a, a, an unrealistic optimist. But I still think we're at that point in the movie where Leonardo DiCaprio's character, you know, screams to the camera uh, and, and, and tries to shake everyone awake there. When it comes to something like climate change, here's the really good news. Uh, we have the technology to actually start dealing with this crisis in a real way. And I only use climate change as one example, but you could take that idea to all the other crises we face, the healthcare crisis, uh, uh, the inequality crisis, the economic inequality crisis, all of these crises, we actually know what we can do to start dealing with them and fixing them. I, I always loved President Kennedy when he said they're man-made problems. That means they can be fixed by man. Exactly. And President John Kennedy hit the nail right on the head when he said that. Absolutely. Now, of course, the problem is, is then it then it's then if it's a man made, if it's a man made problem, we can have man made solution. So it's a matter of political will. It's a yep. matter of whether we're willing to do those things. Yep. And that's ultimately what's in question. Well, that leads me to my final thing. We've had a terrific interview. How do you feel? Do you feel there's any chance 
for the rise of a third party movement in the U.S. You know, I've, I've been talking to Andrew Yang and he's told me that it's going to be a rematch between Trump and Biden and that over 60 percent of the country doesn't like either one of them. So is there a chance for someone to rise out of the ashes, a third party person who not is who is not attached to either of these two political machines? I think now more than at any time in my life, perhaps other than 1992 with Ross Perot. And Ross Perot has kind of been erased from history. People forget how how big a, a factor he was in that well, race. Well, they've attempted to erase me from history I, I, too. I, I, I know they have. I know. And they, <laughs> they tried to erase, they've tried to erase Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, the two-party system does not like anybody from outside that system. But I think that we are in a moment where it is the best opportunity, the best sort of political topography for somebody outside of the system. Uh, now, I want to I be clear, whether that's a third party candidate in the general election, or whether that's somebody coming into one of the major parties from the outside, that remains a question. I have said this before, I am tactically agnostic. I think uh, trying to reform and change the parties using uh, the access points, the, the relatively few access points into those parties, like open primaries and the like, that's good. That's useful. It, that's a, to use the, the proverbial term, the lever, that's a lever of, of, of power, a lever of leverage. Out, third party organizing outside of the two major parties can also be a force. Fusion parties that kind of toggle between being outside of the parties, but sometimes aligning with them and pushing them. All of this is good. And my, my one thing I would say on all of this is, is that my hope is, is that people don't get um, myopically focused on any one of those tactics. It should be yes and. In other words, I'm a little, I, I think it's wrong to say, well, if it's not a, a third party and you're the folks who are trying to change the party from within or hack the party or find a glitch in the matrix in terms of, of primaries in either party, th those folks are bad. And the only thing that's worthwhile doing is a third party. And I think it's similarly not helpful for folks inside the party to look at folks who are doing uh, honest to goodness, good third party work outside for folks inside the parties to, to, to scoff at that. I think our focus needs to be on outcomes. How do we most quickly get to outcomes? How do we most quickly deal with the, the, the ticking time bomb of the climate crisis? How do we most quickly uh, deal with the ticking time bomb, the ongoing disaster of the, of the corporate health insurance uh, situation in this country? I'm focused on outcomes. So third party organizing, great. Uh, trying to win primaries in the Democratic Party, great. Fusion parties that are propping up uh, certain candidates and running their own candidates, all that is what is necessary. David, they also always forget this. Third parties may not win, but third parties can carry the agenda because the two parties don't want the third party to survive. So whatever brings the third party into the fight will be exactly what the two parties focus on because they because they want the third party gone. <laughs> well, here's and you're, you're absolutely right about the dynamics that yeah. if, if the two parties want to stop a third party, then what they should do is rather than um, scoff at the third party, there's a, there's a there, there can be movements to appropriate, in other words, move towards where 
the third party uh, is pushing things. And, and I think right now, I mean, I think anybody who's listening to this, is there anybody out there who thinks that the, that the two parties are doing a good job? Like, is there, I don't think there's, there's I really don't think there's anyone out there who's like, yeah, it's really going well right now. It's really working. Like it is clearly not working. Uh, but I will I will also say one other thing. I think too much of of our of of the discourse always focuses on the idea of like a savior coming in at the top. Yeah. I think third party organizing, fusion party organizing, uh, organizing to change and, and shift within primaries, the parties, it needs to start. It needs to operate, maybe not start, but it needs to operate at also the local level, the absolutely. city level, the, the, absolutely. the state level. I mean, it's absolutely critical. And I think we're all the politics has become so nationalized that we forget about that, that that, that is really critical. Yep. But you must remember anything national, it helps to have name recognition. For sure. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I can brag today. I only raised $300,000 to become governor of Minnesota. I actually, my, my dad, I'll tell you this story, David. It's a funny yeah. story. My dad, eighth grade education, World War II vet, you know, and all that. He said to me one time growing up, you know, all politicians are crooks. And I said, come on, Dad, how can you make a blanket statement like that? They can't all be crooks. He goes, yes, they are. You want to know why? I said, why, Dad? He said, because they spend a million dollars for a job that only pays a hundred grand. <laughs> and in his simple world of where he was a working man, worked for the yeah. city street department, you know, yeah. his whole life. That's all he needed to know. Nobody yeah. under any normal condition would spend more money for a job than what it's going to pay you. Yeah. Yes. So I can, getting back to the end of the story, I could see, look at my dad if there's a heaven and say, Dad, your son's not a crook because I only raised 300000 and I made 120000 a year for four years. If my math is correct, that's 480000 I'm 180000 to the good. <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, you know, that you're right about name recognition, man. I mean, that is ultimately that is it, it cannot be overstated. And I think what's unfortunate about that is, is that what it means is um, not unfortunate, but it's inherent, I guess, at the national level. That's a sort of a self-selectingly small group of people who have enough name recognition to really play outside of the two parties at the national level. You need that or, or a huge amount of money like Ross Perot has. Yeah. Oh, well, I've told people, people have approached me with, oh, The Rock said he might run, Dwayne Johnson, all this. Yeah. And my response is, wait a minute. We just got through with a president that had virtually no experience governing and, in my opinion, was a disaster. I said, all these people, they forget I was a mayor. Yeah. I was a governor. All these people, have them win another election so that they can at least learn how to govern and how the government operates and the way the system works. You can't change it not knowing how it works. That's like, you know, going to a computer and knowing nothing about computers, but you're going to fix it. No, listen, that's a, that's a fantastic point. And it's so important, which is that... I, the, the the fact that we've turned politics into kind of entertainment culture and that we don't see these offices for what they actually are, which are relatively technical offices dealing with relatively technical matters and management uh, uh, struggles. I mean, these are 
it's a, it's a real job. It's I mean, we just you're right. We just had a president who didn't treat it as a real job, who just treated it as the biggest television show in the world. And it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. Now, I want to be clear. I, I think outsiders in the process is, are, are good. I think we need we need more of that. But 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 there's a difference between an outsider who is qualified and an outsider who has no qualifications whatsoever, who's going to turn the thing into just another circus. And who doesn't know how it works. It's a massive piece of machinery. Yes. You know, and you jumping on board, you I learned this. If you can just inch that thing a little bit, nudge it, and right. get it just sliding to a slightly new direction, yes. you've made major accomplishments. Absolutely. It's like you turning know, around an aircraft carrier. Oh, it, it, worse. <laughs> worse, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Anyway, David, I want to thank you. This was an outstanding interview. Couldn't be more pleased. Love to have you back again. Love to talk some more as we get down the road because I personally think your your politics are tremendous. Keep up the investigating for people like me and all of us out here. Well, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to chat with you. I'd love to chat again. Uh, and I hope folks will check out our work at levernews.com. Thanks, David. Have a great one. Thank you. You too.